0: So tonight, we are jumping into a brand new book. We spent about six weeks in the book. Y'all remember what book we were looking at? No, last time. Last (laughs) time. You are ahead of the game, Sarah Parker. Good job. Yeah, we've been looking at Second Peter, but tonight we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit, and we're going to jump into the book of Titus. So I'm just going to jump in and ask you guys the questions, because these are brand new. I haven't given you the answers yet. So do you know who wrote the book of Titus? No, not Titus. Paul. That's Okay, so another, let me give you an easy one then. Who did Paul write it to? Titus. Titus. There we go. Absolutely. Now, let's make this a little bit... This is a trick question, okay? Pay attention. Where was Paul when he wrote this book? No. Well, The truth is, we don't know. We, We know that it was sometime... Paul was in jail in Rome... We learn about that in Acts 28 and he was released and it's believed he wrote it sometime after his release, but he never tells us exactly where he was and scholars had not been able to, to pinpoint a location there, but we do believe that it was written when he was, after he was released from prison in Rome, so he was in jail, but we don't think he was in jail when he actually wrote this. When do we think he wrote it? Does anybody know? Nah, Wrong question. Okay, around 63 to 64 A.D. And why did Paul write this letter to Titus? Okay, I heard because he did something wrong and he'd do something better. What you got back there, Ms. Richardson? Your Bible says never mind? That's scary. Okay. Anybody else? Any guesses? Okay. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's helping him. What you've got here is you've got Paul writing to a younger believer, and he's giving him some instruction. He writes this book to encourage Titus, but he also writes this book to give him some instruction about the structure of the church. And we're going to jump into that in chapter 1. Paul is talking specifically, he says, Titus, I've left you in Crete, and the reason I've left you in Crete is because I want you to make sure that things are taken care of properly when it comes to finding the right leaders for the church. And what he does, as Paul goes through this letter, he fleshes out this idea that the things you say you believe should affect your behavior. What you say you believe, what you say you, you follow with your life, all of those things that you say, this, this is who I am, it should actually play out in your daily life. It should affect the way that you live. And that was true then and that's true now. If we sit here tonight and, and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I put my faith and trust in him. I know I've been forgiven of my sin. Then what you say you believe should affect every area of your life. It should affect school, it should affect your free time, it should affect your entertainment and your relationships, everything. Because it's all too common for some people to say, you know what, I believe this, but then if you actually watch the way they live their lives, it doesn't line up with what they say they believe. And and whether we like it or not, what we don't realize sometimes as disciples of Jesus is that when we live lives like that, where we say this is what we're following and yet this is how we're behaving on a regular basis, what we're doing is showing a world that we don't really believe what we say we believe. Because if we really believed it, if we're really bought into it, it's going to affect what we do. And, And Paul starts fleshing this out through this book. And the way he starts addressing that is he addresses specifically church leadership. Because if you look at any church, anyone that is in a position of leadership in a church, they're going to affect other people. So if they're not living out what they say they believe, that's going to cause other people to follow that same path. And that's not a good place to be.
1: So that's exactly where Paul starts when he's talking to Titus here in this book. So we're going to go through the first nine verses, just the first nine verses tonight. I know some of you get nervous because sometimes we'll start a new book and we'll say, tonight we're going to do verse one. Well, we're going to go a little bit farther than that tonight. We're going to go verses one through nine. So if you will stand with me, and follow along as I read those first nine verses. Here's what Paul says. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Pray with me. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you that we can come together and we can spend time tonight looking at at your word, God, and, and understanding that Even though this is something that was written so long ago, God, it still means something for our life right here today. And God, I pray that you'll help us to see that as we walk through this tonight. And I pray that you'll help us to be different because we've spent time in your word and that we will follow you. We will pursue you with everything that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So Paul
0: starts talking here and the first thing he does, which Paul always does in his letters, is he introduces himself. And there's some important things in this introduction that I don't want to just run really
1: quickly by. So let me read those first four verses for you again, and then we'll talk about what those things are. It says again in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's a really long sentence. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul starts by introducing himself. What's the first thing that he calls himself here?
0: He, He says he's a servant. He's using this word. This, this is a word picture that Paul is using here. And what he's doing is he's giving this picture that, that somebody who, who, by choice, because in this time, it's now when we think of servants, we think of,
1: of, we almost think of slaves. In fact, the original language uses the word doulos. You guys have heard me say that before. And that's the same equivalent of a slave in that time. But a slave in that time is not the American understanding we have of what slavery was. In that time, a doulos, a, a servant, a slave, was somebody who agreed to go into service for a period of time. So a lot of times it was to pay off a debt or because they owed something. But it was a mutual agreement that they did this. So what Paul is doing here is Paul is saying, I'm, I'm a servant of God. I'm a slave of God. He's basically saying he doesn't own anything that's his. Everything in his life, everything about him, his entire person, his entire being belongs to and is devoted completely to his master, which is God. And the interesting thing here is Paul has kind of always seen himself as a servant of God. If you go back and you, and you understand or go a little bit farther back in Paul's story, there's a time where Paul didn't follow God. At that time, he was called Saul. And Paul was, he was a religious man. He was trained as a Pharisee, which would be one of the religious leaders. He knew all of the right things about God. And yet Saul's entire purpose was to persecute people who were following Jesus Christ. He was seeking them out. He was trying to put them in jail. He was trying to wipe out Christianity. And in doing that, Paul was on a mission serving God because he thought he was doing what what God told him he was supposed to do. And yet there's one point in time as you read through Scripture, you see that Paul is on his way. He's on his way to a place called Damascus. And as he's going, he encounters the person of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Jesus changes his life and changes his eternity. So he's still a servant of God, but now he's not a servant of God for his own means and his own purposes. He's a servant of God because that's the purpose God now has for his life. So it's interesting here that he calls himself a servant because he's always kind of seen himself that way, but he also refers to himself as an apostle. At that time, that's not a name that just anybody got. To be an apostle, you were one of the people that had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. That, that wasn't a title that everybody got. That was not a term that anybody could use. So that was a title that carried weight. There was importance to that title. So as Paul is introducing himself here, he's saying, hey, I'm not speaking on my authority. I'm speaking on the authority of the God that I serve. And he says he's doing this for what he calls the, the elect. That's all of the people that would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one who forgives people of their sins. He says, I'm doing what I'm doing so that I can teach those people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, I can teach them the word of God about who God is and how to live a life that seeks after God and a life that honors God. And just like all of the other letters that Paul has written, these early readers got to benefit from what God had put into his mind and his heart and that he pinned on paper. And because of that, we get the benefit of it too just like they got to see what it looks like to live a life that that honors God, we get to see the same thing as we dig in to Paul's letters here. We have the privilege to understand and read God's word to know who God is. We may be in a different time and in a different culture than when this was written, but the truth that we have here in the word of God does not change. It's just as important now as it was then. So we have to understand Paul's not just a guy who's sitting down writing every thought that comes into his brain. He is a man that is sitting down writing under the authority of God and under the influence of the Holy Spirit because he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just glance over those words really quickly, but those words mean a lot. They have a lot of implications about the rest of what we're getting ready to read. And he goes on there in verse 2, and he helps us see the reason he's writing these things. He's writing them because of the hope that he has through Jesus. The hope of eternal life. The hope of salvation from his own sin, which is the hope that every believer says that they have. And he says, this is the plan, this hope of eternal life, this hope of salvation. This was the plan from before the foundation of the world. This has always been God's plan. This isn't something that God just came up with and, oh, we got to the end of the Old Testament. Oh, that didn't work. Guess we're going to try something new when we start in the New Testament. God didn't do that. He didn't pull an audible like we do in a game. God had this plan from the very beginning before time even began. And that's important for us because there's hope and there's assurance in that fact because we can know that God is sovereign. God isn't just making things up as He goes. God has a plan. If God had a plan for creation, if God had a plan for how salvation would play out, God also has a plan for your life. And it's not just left up to chance. It's not just whatever the fates allow. It's what God has planned for your life. And you have the opportunity to pursue Him and to honor Him and to live out that plan. Paul wasn't doing that when he was persecuting Christians. But when Christ got a hold of him, it turned his whole world around. And all of a sudden, he was pursuing everything that God had for him from that moment on. And that's what he calls us to as disciples. This is the man that is writing this book to Titus. And then he kind of wraps it up there and he clarifies, I'm writing it to Titus. Now, he he uses a phrase here in this one verse. He says, uh, let me get to it. He says, my true child in a common faith now let me clarify, Paul was not Titus's father, okay? They did, there was no blood relation there because he identifies right there how he sees him as a child. It's the common faith that they share. You guys have heard me use this phrase before. You've heard it across the street if you've been in, in a Sunday morning service. You've heard the phrase church family used because Scripture tells us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, We are now members of God's family. We are brothers and sisters. We are heirs with Christ to God our Father. So what that means is Paul is sitting here writing to Titus, and because of their common faith, because of the love that they share for Jesus Christ, because of that salvation that they share in him, Paul has a connection to Titus. This is somebody that Paul has spent time with. This is somebody that Paul has poured into. He's taught him. He's trying to teach him still even through this letter. So he's saying because of our connection through Jesus Christ, there's a unity there. And he's writing this message with clear authority that it's not him. It's God who has given him this message. It's that message of salvation. It's not one that he came up with. You guys heard me talk about this when we were going through 2 Peter and we were talking about being able to identify false teachers And the only way you can identify false teachers is by knowing what the Word of God actually says. Paul is saying, hey, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what God's Word says, and this is what God's Word has said all along. He said, this is not some new message that I have created so that more people will listen to me, so that more people will follow me. He says, I'm teaching the same thing that every other Christ follower, that every other scripture writer has put down on paper. We're teaching salvation through Jesus Christ. And everything he's about to lay out in the rest of this book, even though he does it in different ways, every single thing he lays out in here is about your beliefs impacting your behavior. And it is all based on the person of Jesus Christ under the authority of who God is. That's important for us to know this. We need to know why he's writing this book because there's authority there. There's things in there that matter for our lives. And what he does in verse five, he starts moving into the practical idea of how this works out in life. And he chooses the specific example of the church. Verse five, he writes this. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If any If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So Paul is saying, hey, Titus, I was in Crete with you. I left. Let me tell you why I left you there. He put on Titus the responsibility to help the church there establish qualified leadership. And and that's important because he's helping the church to have structure so that the church could move forward, because you all know that in any kind of organization, you've probably seen it in band or on the ball field or, or in a classroom. If there's not somebody or individuals working together to give direction, then the thing just flounders. It doesn't function the way it's supposed to. And and Peter, excuse me, Peter, I'm going to go back to that one. Paul was talking to Titus saying, hey, I've left you to help give them direction. I've left you to help them understand What it is they're supposed to look for when they look for leadership in the church. And the first thing he says right there is that leaders have to be above reproach. Does anybody know what that means? Has anybody heard that phrase before? Be above reproach. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Do you know what it means? Anybody? Blameless? What was that? Above suspicion? Okay. Those, those are good definitions. What? Okay. Your integrity can't be questioned. No, those those are good answers. That's exactly what that means. To be above reproach means that, that you can't be accused of wrongdoing. Your integrity is above reproach. That means somebody is not going to automatically assume when something is done wrong, something is said wrong, that you were the one involved with it. In fact, it should be that when they start thinking about those things, you're not even a thought that comes into their mind. That's what it means to live by above reproach. That's what he's talking about here. It's, it's this idea that, that your behavior is actually dictated by your belief, that your life, that your words, that your actions, that your relationship, all of those things are consistent with what you say you believe. And he gives two great examples there. He, t- he talks about, number one, in your marriage and, and in, your, in your home with your children. He says that the, 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 the elder, the, the church leader, the, the overseer, whichever, because he uses some phrases interchangeably here, he's saying that this holds true for your marriage and your family. Because it's a problem if you're looking for church leadership and the person that you're looking at to help give leadership in the church is known for being promiscuous or being a player, somebody that doesn't have attention for one person, they're looking at anybody that's interested that's a problem because there's no integrity. And there's no commitment there. And same thing when it when it talks about children here. He's giving us the idea that it's a problem if the leader in the church, their child or their children, if they're living in ways that show everyone that they're not pursuing Christ. Because as, as, as a leader, if you can't manage your own house and help guide the people there that are closest to you, how are you going to guide other people? See, that's a huge qualification of where your beliefs have to live out in the way that you behave. They have to live out. Basically, it's this. The gospel has to be lived at home first. And understand, even leaders make mistakes. Even leaders mess up. We're not talking about, oh, they really messed up, so they're done now. We're talking about a life that is consistently pursuing Christ even when there are problems sometimes. That's what he's talking about here. Someone who consistently, above reproach, they are known for pursuing Christ in every area of their life, and it shows up first and foremost in their home. And then he goes on and gives a little bit more explanation here in verse 7. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be, there's those words again, above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul's bringing it right back again to being above reproach, to your beliefs determining your behavior, to being blameless. And all of these things are important because the character and conduct of a leader will affect the people that they are trying to lead. And what he does here in verse 7 is he says, hey, these are five things that a, a, a leader, a church person that is above reproach is not. He said, these are the things that shouldn't be present in their lives. He says, they shouldn't be arrogant. That means somebody that's not only concerned about themselves and not concerned about other people. Because that's what arrogance is. Arrogance is, I am the most important person in the room. He said, don't don't look for that when you look for church leaders. He said, they're not not quick to lose his temper. That's not, you don't want somebody who flares up and gets angry at the very, at, at the littlest thing. That's something that shouldn't make anybody angry. You want somebody that's got control of their temper there. Then it goes on. It says, not someone who gets drunk. That's somebody who doesn't lose self-control, whether it be because of alcohol or, let's be honest, any other substance these days. That they're self-controlled. They're not letting other things outside substances control them and influence them. He says they're not supposed to be violent which means you you don't want somebody that's going to strike out and punch somebody in the throat just because they said something they didn't like. Somebody that just reacts, and their first reaction is a balled-up fist and rage. You don't want people like that in leadership. And it says there's not supposed to be greedy. They're not supposed to be somebody that seeks gain or takes advantage of other people for their own gain. Remember, we talked about that with false teachers, too. False teachers will gain at the expense of others. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that's not the character of the people that you want to select for church leadership. Which is why it's so helpful that he goes right into verse 8 and he goes from giving five things that a church leader shouldn't be to giving six things that they should be. Look at what he says here. He says they should be hospitable or, or they should be welcome. They should be open and welcoming to others, which is pretty much the opposite of arrogant. Think about that for a second. Hospitable. Welcoming to others. Don't answer this question, but those of you who have come here, the first time you showed up and didn't really know anybody but maybe more than one person, did people greet you? Were they hospitable? See, I asked that question because this is talking specifically about church leadership, but if these are qualifications for disciples of Jesus, maybe it's something we should all be striving for. He says, be hospitable, a lover of good, somebody that promotes the good of others, self-controlled, not giving in to every single impulse and doing whatever, whenever, just because you feel like it. He says, be upright, holy, disciplined. That all has to do with living a life that is obedient to the word of God. Paul does a great job right here instructing Titus on what to look for in the lives of those that would lead in the church because every one of those things, they're observable. You can't see into somebody's heart. You can't see into their brain and know what they're thinking. Yes, you can do scans and actually see the brain. I understand that. But you can't know what they're thinking. You can't observe those things. But everything that Paul has listed out for Titus here, these are things that can be seen. Because these are all opportunities for belief to affect behavior. And in every one of these things, whether it's the negative or the positive that Paul says, Titus, you need to look for these things, there's a common thread. Those people that we would seek and select for leadership in the church must be more focused on others than they are themselves. Every one of those, don't get a guy like this, is somebody that's focused on themselves. Every one of those six things where Paul says, This is what you're looking for? Every one of those means they're focused on other people because that is what Jesus Christ modeled in Scripture for his followers and for us. It's an understanding that that those who are called to lead in the church are actually called to serve. We talk a lot about leadership, but we lead by serving. We lead by lifting others up, by encouraging others, by building each other up. That's how you do that. And there may be times, guys, where, where people, you,
0: <laughs> we're
1: called to serve whether we ever have a leadership role or not. Let's just put it that way. You may be in the church and you may never have a title. You may never be the one that stands up and teaches a class or head of the deacons or, or serves on this committee or does this or does that. You may never have any of that. But still, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, every single one of us is called to serve, because it's a call to follow Christ, to put the needs and the welfare of other people above our own selfish desires, to work, to direct others to follow Jesus. Let me tell you something right now. If you come on Wednesday nights because Pastor Jesse, you're coming for the wrong reasons. And I don't assume that anybody does because I'm kind of lame. I get that. But if you're coming here because of who's on this platform, no matter who it is, you're here for the wrong reason. You need to come because you're pursuing Christ. Because you're seeking to grow together. Because you want to understand God's word and how to live a life that honors him, a life that follows him. That is what Paul is talking about when he's talking to Titus here. And that's why it matters for church leadership because one one of the greatest impacts that a church leader has on the church is the way that his character and his integrity plays out that's why Paul says Titus look for the things that you can observe because what you're observing in their behavior that shows what they truly believe if they're all about themselves they may not be following Christ but if they're all about everybody else and pointing people towards Jesus that's who you want leading the church because they're going to point people towards Christ. And that's what we're supposed to do in the church Is we are supposed to be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ and living it out every single day. And then he finishes here in verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict Short and simple, it must be able to teach the truth of God's word. Which means it's somebody who studied it. It's somebody who spent time in it. It's somebody who has put in the hard work. You guys heard me talk about this last week how with scripture, sometimes you rake over passages. Sometimes you have to stop and dig. The raking is when things are obvious reading through it. The dig is man, this is hard to understand. You want people leading in the church who have stopped and take on that hard work of digging into God's Word and understanding what the Word of God means, or at least understanding it as far as it can be understood by our limited human minds. And he says they must know the truth well enough to call out those who would twist the truth. Those who would who would tell lies about who God is. It's not somebody that's just going out and saying, you know what? that guy's a liar and that guy's a liar and that guy's a heretic and that guy's misusing scripture. It's not somebody that's going out and looking for a confrontation not looking for a fight but somebody when they see a problem with what's being taught about God they're willing to say that's not right. and We need to address that. That's the kind of person that Paul is laying out for Titus here as to what the church needs in leadership. So the question is this so what? Guys are teenagers. You don't have roles in church leadership right now, right? Why does this matter for you? Why is this important for us the way it was important for this church and this young man back then? And there's a couple reasons it's important. Number one, you need to know what to look for when it comes to selecting a leader in a church. You you need to know what, what the person who Scripture says displays a God-honoring life actually looks like. This is a standard that's laid out in the Word of God as to what every leader in the church should look like. These are outward indicators of an inward pursuit of Jesus Christ. When they say that that what they say here, what they say they believe should affect their behavior. It should affect how they're living it out. When you choose to be a part of a church, because there's going to come a day probably for most of you that you're going to graduate high school and you're either going to go to work or you're going to get a job or you're going to get married, you're going to do something, but you may not still live in the same town as your parents and the church that they brought you to your entire life. You need to know how to look for a church. And part of looking for a church, a big part of looking for a church, is making sure that the leadership is biblical. The, the, the people up on the platform are the ones who are just saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. They're the ones who are living out that servant attitude that Jesus Christ had as they seek to lead people. You've got to know that when you become a part of a church, there may come a day where your church has to call a pastor or call a leader. You need to know what to look for. That's why it matters now. Guys, for, for some of you, you've been in this church long enough that you've been here since Pastor Brian was called to this church and I was called to this church and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Clay and there's all kinds of interview processes and, and votes and things that go into that. But the most important thing is understanding that no matter what a church you're in, if you ever get to the point that you're part of a church calling a leader, you need to know what that leader is supposed to look like. That's why it matters now. Because some of you are getting to the age where you're about to graduate in the next year or so, if not in just a couple weeks. And you're going to have to find a church. You need to know what leadership is supposed to look like biblically. It's important. The other reason is this. It matters because as you pursue Jesus Christ, this is what you as a disciple should strive to be. Yes, he's talking specifically about church leaders here. But nothing has been laid out here to Titus by Paul that isn't what every disciple of Jesus should be. Someone that seeks to serve people. Someone that is more concerned about the needs of others than their own. Someone who is not up that says, look at me, it's all about me. They say, look at Christ. It's all about Him." That's what we're all called to be. Now, I understand the specific example here, whether you're a man or a woman. Ladies, you can't be the husband of one wife. That's not possible, okay? So we're, we understand that's a specific example. But as you look at this, these qualifications are given as a guide for selecting leadership. But this is what we should all, as Christ followers, look like. These are the character traits we're supposed to have. This is where every believer should be above reproach. Every believer should have unquestionable character and unquestionable conduct the way that Paul is laying this out here. Because every one of us that professes Jesus Christ as our personal Savior from our own sin, we should all be pursuing Christ and striving for personal holiness. That's what we're called to. That's why this matters for us now. You're not in a church that's calling a pastor right now. You may not be looking for a new church. and need to know what, what kind of pastor leadership you're looking for. But you are in a church right now where you say you're following Jesus Christ. And if that's true for you, this is what we're called to. This is true for every believer, every disciple. And my question for you is, are you doing that? And I understand we all have off days. We all have days where we mess this up. But are you actively, daily pursuing this kind of life where what you say you believe actually affects your behavior in every part of your life? I asked you guys this question last week as we finished up 2 Peter. There were four B's that Peter laid out that disciples are supposed to be in their life. And my question to you last week was, which one of those B's do you need to work on? That's all a part of this. How are you doing on that this week? A bunch of you turned in cards. And I can tell you right now, I read and prayed for every one of them. And your life group leader, whether you attend on a Sunday morning or not, the class that you would be in on a Sunday morning, your life group leader read and has prayed through all of those. God is working in your life that you are pursuing Jesus Christ with everything that you have so that what you say you believe on a Sunday and a Wednesday and if we go to camp or away for a week what you say you believe in all of those little secluded moments actually affects your behavior every single moment of every single day and, and if you're sitting here tonight you some of you may be struggling with and, and you're struggling for what I believe to be one of two reasons. Either you've decided it's just too hard and you don't want to try, or you don't have a relationship with Christ. And you don't know what it means to pursue Him because you've never started that relationship. And whichever one of those you fall into, or maybe there's something else I haven't thought of as always possible. Whichever one of those you fall into tonight, what is stopping you? What is stopping you from pursuing Christ with everything that you have? What is stopping you from living for Him instead of yourself and your own glory? And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but that's the way Scripture lays it out. So it's what we got to go by. If you're here tonight and, and you're still struggling with that thing that you wrote down last week, it's okay. We all struggle. Ask you to do this. Write it down again. Put it on a prayer card again. Drop it in this basket so that we can keep praying for you as you pursue Christ, even when it's hard. And if you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't know how to live that out because you don't have a relationship. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You can change that right now. You can pursue him, much like Paul, Saul, who encountered Christ on the Damascus Road. Jesus got his attention, and it changed his entire world. And he went from living for himself to living everything for Christ. It's a scary thing to do. But it is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Asking God to forgive you of your sin. Putting your faith and trust in him and following him with the rest of your life. It's a decision you will never regret, even on the days that you struggle to follow Him. It is a decision that you will never regret. And if you're here tonight and you've never done that, we're going to stand in a moment. We're going to sing and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you, if you want to do that tonight, I'm going to stand right over here. Come talk to me or come talk to one of the other adults in the room. It doesn't have to be me. But tell them I'm ready. I'm ready to have that relationship. I'm ready to pursue Christ so that they can pray with you and they can pray for you. If you're here and you're just still working on what you were working on last week, write it down, drop it in that basket, and take a moment and just ask God to continue to give you the strength to pursue Him each and every day. It matters that what we say we believe affects the way that we live our lives. Because if it doesn't, we have to ask Do we really believe? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We Thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray right now for every single person in this room. God, help us. Help us to live out what we say we believe. Help us to know, God to know that you've forgiven us of our sin. And help us to pursue you in such a way, God, that people can see it, that it's observable, people can watch who we are and know that we're pursuing you. God, I pray for anybody in here tonight that's struggling with that. God, give them the strength, give them the courage, give them the endurance to continue that pursuit of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anybody in here tonight.